This one's going to be different than what we usually do. So, y'all get ready, and let's see what the Lord does with these scriptures. See what he shows you. So tonight the topic will be called the wind in the mouth of the prophets. I've taken it after the what to do with the storm. And I'm going into a look of wind in the Old Testament. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Because the Bible tells you where God keeps the wind. Do you know where God keeps it? There's a scripture that tells you where God keeps his wind. He keeps it in his storehouse of course. In Psalm 135. Verse 7, it says, He makes the clouds rise on the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain, and he brings the wind from his storehouse. So, for all of you literal <laughs> biblical scholars, there's a storehouse that he has somewhere that he keeps his wind in. And occasionally he brings his wind out. So I thought y'all would enjoy that. I thought that's something that you need to know. Now let's talk a little bit from a scientific point of view of what we know about this at this point. The natural wind is the motion, or the flow, or the bulk movement of air. So I like those words. It's motion in your life. It's the flow. It's something outside of you, which composes the atmosphere of the earth. The speed of it is measured, and we study the effect. Air is compromised, or comprised. <laughs> it's compromised. <laughs> it's compromised because there's a lot of different components. But it's comprised of 78% nitrogen. 21% oxygen, and it has one half percent to a half percent of water in it, depending if it's around sea level or not. Do you know what else is in air? Birds. Very good. <laughs> Oregon. Okay, y'all want to make any guesses besides, you know, the genius we've already had? Uh -huh. Yeah, there is a little bit of pollution, and they name different things. So the oxygen is 21%. It's Trace amounts of neon, helium, methane, and krypton. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was interesting of what we breathe and what all the components are. So wind is caused by two things, pressure and temperature. Now let me tell you what I call it wind. I call wind the transportation department. The DOT of heaven. This is the storehouse. The wind is a critical means of transportation for seeds, insects, birds, which can travel on wind currents for thousands of miles. So if you didn't have wind, it wouldn't work. If we didn't have wind, think about transportation issues which would suffer. It's a power source for different types of mechanical work, electricity, recreation. Wind powers voyages of sailing ships across Europe's oceans. Before steam power came up, up until recent times, without the wind, we'd have a ship that sat there in the water until we rode it. So there would be a lot of undiscovered places. Think what it would have been like if it had just been air without wind. Movement, motion. You don't want to be air without being wind. <laughs> Okay, so you've got things like hot air balloons. Gave yeah, us a little bit of travel. Take short trips, and there were powered flights that used it to increase their lift and reduce fuel consumption. Wind. God created the atmosphere around the earth to sustain life. You know, with the wind, it brings smell to you. It plants fruit. 
It does unique things that we never think about. In the book of the Song of Songs, it's the poets. So wind in the hands of the poets here, where the bride calls out for the north and the south winds. The bride says, Awake, O north winds, and come, O south, blow upon my garden. Then its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat of the pleasant fruits. So the smell, it's the beauty, it creates the fruit. So the wind of the spirit is something that God created in this earth that does certain things that you might not think of because the wind is invisible. And so it's something that we sometimes don't reckon with. Now, what surprised me and what got me actually going down this road was the fact that we have something that we do not do so much in the days and times that we're living in. And if we do do it, we think this person's kind of a nerd or they're really old-fashioned. But I doubt any of you have gone out today and said, oh, this is the east wind hitting me today. Mm-hmm. Or the wind today came out of the north. I mean, have y'all ever thought in directions of the wind? Some people, but not so much the modern generation. I was so proud of one of my crossliners, Kayla. She gets her teaching certificate. She takes her classroom and she's going to actually teach them which direction we're in in Brownwood. I was so pleased with her because so many people, they don't know North Brownwood, South Brownwood, East, West. They don't realize, they don't pay attention to the sun. They can't recognize those parts. They don't think in those areas. If you tell them go East or West, it's totally foreign. I was so proud of Kayla. I looked at that room. There it was, the North, the South. And then she had the West and the East. She went opposite. <laughs> it's one thing to teach them. The reverse. She goes, at least I got the elements out there for them. <laughs> yeah. So the direction of the wind. I'm going to tell you, it's interesting that Jesus talked about the significance of the direction of wind. And I want you to never again think in terms of wind without thinking about the direction of it. That he points out different types of winds. Wind direction is usually expressed in terms of direction from which it originates. For example, a northerly wind blows from the north to the south. I mean, that sounds like, well, that's just common sense. But the truth is, you don't know... Did it mean northerly? Does that mean it blowing to the north? Or does it mean it's blowing from the north? And so they actually do the direction as where it's coming from. That's how you pinpoint it. So weather vanes pivot to indicate the direction of the wind. You know, at an airport, have you ever seen one of those socks, wind socks? And so they tell you the direction of the wind. So Luke 12, 54 through 56. When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain. And it does. Do you interpret the present times that you live in? Jesus says you immediately see a cloud, you see what direction it's from, and you know whether you're going to have rain or not. And he says, so you must interpret the signs of your times. So I see that Jesus brought up the fact that it should be common knowledge. It should be something that we are all aware of. It's the direction of the wind. That he brings that to the table. It's the wind It's frequently used in the Bible as a metaphor for something that we're supposed to learn from spiritually. So every time you see wind, it's meaning something. There's a meaning for it. There's something the Bible's trying to get across to you. 
So having a time where we take it and we think we're going to study what the wind is and think through the facts about it will help you better understand what he's trying to convey to us about that particular subject that he's trying to tell us something about. So Daniel 2.35 gives us the glimpse of the power of the wind. And in the dream that he's interpreting, it's the wind that's the force that carried it away. It removed a kingdom. Maybe there's something to be with gone with the wind. (laughs) And so you see in in Daniel 2.35 that there was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and they became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. When you understand that those mean kingdoms, you see that as the breath or the wind blows across the earth, that kingdoms rise and fall. The direction of the wind The wind can move ships, and it can get us moving. Have you ever, on a windy day outside as a kid, almost could fly? You just twirled, and you could feel the wind like you could almost feel it lift you up. You know, I remember one time I was on an island in the Philippines, and they had read Mom's book. For some reason, they read it differently than we had written it. But they thought the tornado had come and lifted me and carried me away. And I told them, I think that's Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. I think they thought that I had gone up in the tornado. <laughs> and so anyway, they had the understanding that the tornado had picked me up. <laughs> so the wind moves you. In Genesis 8:1, after the flood, we're told that God remembered Noah. The way that he remembered Noah was that he made a wind to pass over the earth. Isn't that interesting to think that the way that God could remember you is that he makes a wind to pass over whatever it is in your life that needs to blow away. Do you have some chaff that needs to blow? So God remembered Noah so that the earth had a wind come across it and it caused the flood to subside. There's some high waters. There's some flood waters. There's some things that need to be blown away. The wind can carry everything, no matter how big or how heavy it is, it can carry it. In Numbers 11, 31 through 33, and there went forth a wind from the Lord. And guess what this wind brought? It can push and it can bring. It can, it can scatter away and it can gather. What did this wind bring? It didn't just say God gave the children of Israel quail. It said he sent a wind, and it brought him provision. So the wind brings you things, and the wind takes away things. (laughs) It's very interesting, the wind in Scripture. So let's take a minute, and let's consider the wind individually. Because I've challenged you to have your north and your south, and remember, and your west and your east. (laughs) All worked out in your mind. So let's look at them individually. There are four directions to the wind. And it's very unique how we see this, but I don't think there's anything in Scripture that's wasted. So let's squeeze this and see if we can pull anything out of it. Let's ask the north wind, what is your message? And the north wind answers to us. When the wind is spoken of in the Bible as the north wind, a large part of the Scripture on the north wind is the Scripture about judgment and justice. The judgment and the justice of God. So when the scripture reads forth about the north, you can know that this is the setting. We may be headed for a north wind. 
it brings that justice. So awake, O north wind, come, O south wind, make my garden breathe out and let the fragrance flow. Awake, O north wind. When the prophets Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and others foretold judgments coming from Israel, the judgments always came from the north. Babylon, Assyria, the rod of God's anger. Over the years, some people had tried to take the north wind out of the Bible. They tried to dismiss that there's an eternity of hell, that people must know the Lord, or a judgment against sin, or a time for repentance. If you believe very strongly in the truth that God is love, but true love is meaningless if there's not some sort of line of distinction, of justice, of truth. Like, for instance, people having misconceptions of God that, you know, the laws or the Ten Commandments, they're not there to punish us. I mean, you don't see the Ten Commandments written in, and there's a punishment, a, a club beside each one of them, but the Ten Commandments were written to protect us. Wasn't it a better society when the world was living with the Ten Commandments? Don't you think life would be so much better if everybody just kept these Ten Commandments? So the Ten Commandments are not a punishment, but they're a protection. There's something that if everybody followed those ten things, it would literally make a very peaceful society because so many of our problems are self-inflicted. He wants to protect our happiness, not remove it. And thus the north wind. The north wind can bring some not-so-desirable weather. It can be pretty unpleasant. It can be those violent storms, those emotional moments that we talked about last time of the disciples in the boat screaming, that the emotional side of a storm. And that's when the justice comes and it divides between what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong, the hell, the thunder, the lightning. It can be like a season in your life. Can you imagine if you lived a lot further north and the cold, harsh northern winter? I mean, like we enjoy summer into what we consider the Indian summer. And it goes way past the fall for us. And we hold on to every moment of summer. Some people like to get a hold of their sweaters. But truthfully, I like summer. And I can't imagine when people have nine months of winter. And so just like we put up with seasons and people choose to live in harsh climates and live through cold seasons, there can be a season that you have to overcome in. Short winters work for me. I don't live in the equator where there's no winter. I don't want to live in a state, they talk about Florida, doesn't have seasons. I enjoy seasons, but I like them short. <laughs> I like to feel cold so I remember how good heat feels. <laughs> so the north wind has that feeling of coldness, of harshness. It represents a time of adversity. It can be that season of discipline, correction, pruning, death to areas of the flesh. It can take the hardening of a cold north wind to produce a great and mature harvest. The north wind. The north wind brings to us rain. In Ezekiel 1 verse 4 it says, like a north wind that brings unexpected rain. Notice what Proverbs does with the north wind. It says this, like a north wind that brings unexpected rain is a sly tongue which provokes a horrified look. 
<laughs> Proverbs 25:23. It's not just any wind. It's like the shock of a north wind. It's like a sneaky, conniving forked tongue. And you're just appalled. You're shocked by what it did. It brings a, a change. It does something that was totally unexpected for you. The north wind. And it brings to us brilliant light shows of, of lightning. Ezekiel 1 4 says, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. Ezekiel doesn't just tell you there's wind. He doesn't just tell you there's a storm. He tells you it's from the north. And I dare say you will never read your Bible again that you will not pay attention from whence the wind shall come. The north wind brings conviction, judgment, reproving. In Jeremiah 51, 16, it says, When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes the lightning with rain and brings forth the wind out of his treasures. The wind is one of God's treasures stored up in heaven. So I would tell you that your conviction of the north wind is a time of repentance, of uh, getting it right in your heart with the Lord. You know, Paul gave us this advice. He said, if you'll judge yourself, then you won't have to be judged. I'll tell you something that I told one of the guys. I got a new guy, and we were headed on the mission field. And bless his heart, he hadn't had parents. And so everything he did was wrong. He had had no correction in his life. I remember we were loading him up in the van, and he dropped his camera. And out of his mouth, he took God's name in vain. I took him to the back of the van. I knew his life was going to be long and miserable. He was going to have a long trip with us. And I knew every kid would spend all their time correcting him. I knew it was going to be rough for him. He had a lot of north wind ahead of him. And I taught him something. I told him, will you just take one scripture out of the Bible and learn it and do it? Well, he said, yes. I said, see, this Bible that you have that they've given you, it's so big and so thick. You could never learn all the commandments and do them all. So I'm going to ask you to just do one thing. And still sometimes he'll say this to me. He wrote me on Mother's Day and thanked me. But I told him, will you tell yourself and say out loud every time someone speaks to you, I love correction. The Lord loves me when he corrects me. It's the love of the Lord. It's not because he hates me. It's because he loves me he's correcting me. I'm telling you, at first it was difficult for him to say it. But it was amazing. I'd see him kind of, you know, puff up as a man. And then he'd go, the Lord loves me. He's correcting me. The Lord loves me. He's correcting me. Let me tell you, it'll help you with the north wind if you tell yourself, the Lord loves me. That's why he corrects me. If you learn to love correction, you're wise. Correction will help you make it to where you're going. You remember how they said when they were shooting for the moon? They could just be off just 10 miles on Earth, but it would shoot you out into missing the moon completely. So they had to do course corrections constantly. That's what the north wind does. It brings correction. If you learn to love it, you'll get along well.
I think the Lord gave that to me to save the guy's sanity. I just was like, bless his heart. I shall never know a guy that's going to have more correction than this poor young man. Because he was born without any correction growing up. So he had to get it all when he should have been entering his adult years. You know what they say about correction? The external correction you got from your parents because they loved you becomes the internal voice of discipline when you grow. He never got the correct external voice. He never was told those words of wisdom or truth. And you take what you were told and it goes inside of you to guide you. The north wind. The next wind is the south wind. The south wind is soft, warm, caressing, content, refreshing. It's the side of the wind that you love the way the wind is on your cheek. But I'm going to tell you a weakness about this wind. It's what some might say is tricky. And they base it upon one example in the Bible that it makes a big to-do about it. I don't see it as tricky. I don't see it as conniving. I see it as weak. The south wind cannot hold its ground. It is overpowered by the other wind. So the good thing about that soft, warm, sunlight, contentment, caressing, refreshing wind is it does not hold its ground. So south wind, what do you have to say for yourself? Oh, south wind. The south wind brings the summer heat that will ripen the sweetened harvest. It represents the quiet comfort that the Holy Spirit gives us, Job 37:17. It's a time of warmth, prosperity, refreshment, and it can lead to growth. Like you grow in warmth and pleasure. But this is the example of where the south wind actually tricked the people. But I don't think it tricked them on purpose. I don't think the south wind decided, I'm going to trick them. I think the south wind just didn't stay in its place. It didn't stand its ground. The south wind is what you will look like if your life is full of compromise. We have a young man right now. And he is like a son to me. He declared his sonship to me. And he loves me. I made him swear his allegiance. <laughs> but the one problem with this guy, he is like a teddy bear. He's so sweet, he would do anything for me. But he's like the south wind. He does not hold his position. And because he's changed his position so many times, he can't stay loyal. He's moved. He tries to be loyal to too many, and it's not working for him. He has lost the trust of leadership. He aspires to be a leader, but one of the worst things about a leader is when they cannot hold their ground. They cannot sense between what's good and evil. And because of that, he's allowed sly tongues and lying lips to come in. And because he didn't hold his ground, he's caused me problems because he was there to hold his ground for me, but he can't hold it because he's a south wind. He can't resist being everybody's friend. He can't take it upon himself to know that this person that he cares about, that he looks up to, that the best thing he could do to them is stand against them 
until they get it sorted out in their head. He doesn't realize that's the best thing. See, the south wind, it reminds me of a calf I saw once. It was real unusual. The calf lost its mom, and it nursed every cow in the herd. I've had a kid like that once. They don't find people that's special to them or that God appointed to them. They nurse every cow. <laughs> and it's a, a sad situation. I've looked at it and, you know, they'll take their kicks because some people kick them. <laughs> and some almost wash them with their tail. But they nurse everyone in the herd. And that's what the south wind does. And that's what you cannot grow into. It works when you're two. It doesn't work when you're 22. You know, I heard about this the other day. Someone set up a camera and they loaded the video. But they were hearing their cow scream. They were hearing the sound of like a, a cheetah outside. So with their game camera, it gives you the advantage to see things that normally a person being outside, unless you're as quiet as an Indian and your breath is not heard, that only the game camera can catch. And they could not believe it when this baby cougar came down and nursed the mama cow every night. And she let him nurse. The relationship between the cougar and the cow. When it's young, it works. <laughs> when it's older, it's, it doesn't work. And so my young man is nursing <laughs> every cow. And it doesn't look right at his age. He needs to have his strength. So this one is dangerous. And it's like what we're talking about here. It's in Acts 27. And it describes Paul's journey towards Rome. And this is where he had appealed to Caesar. And he had said, I want to speak to Caesar. Crazy Nero. <laughs> Who would appeal to that crazy man? And so they've taken Paul, and they've taken him in a boat. And we read in verse 13, When the south wind blew softly, supposing that it was safe to sail, the master of the ship gave the order, let's put out, it's a south wind. He trusted the strength of the south wind. It's the most pleasant of all the winds, but it's the most dangerous if it cannot hold its ground. The ship had hardly cleared the mouth of the harbor before the wind suddenly shifted and the south wind ceased to blow, but a powerful, now I've heard this said was east and I've heard it said that it was northeast. They have a word for it. I'll teach it to you soon. But it came down from the mountains and for 14 days and nights, neither the sun nor the stars could be seen. Now, when you're a ship, what guides you? The sun and the stars. <laughs> Can you imagine 14 days with neither the sun nor the stars? Neither. I mean, those are gloomy days. I mean, you'd be taking your calendar in the boat going, I'm joking. Okay, so the ship had blown through many stormy seas so that all hope of being saved was abandoned until the last ship struck on the cliffs of the island of Malta. For 14 days, this ship went crazy. What brought the ship to run? The treacherous sea of the south wind. 
The wind blew softly, and they set out to sail. Sounds like a marriage proposal. <laughs> but the south wind only tempted them out of the safe harbor. You cannot count on south winds to always be there. You have to be prepared for the other types of violent winds. It's a change at a moment's notice. It's the thing of can't be maintained. So not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose, and it's called the Euroclydon, E-U-R-O-C-L-Y-D-O-N. It's a very interesting name. It gives it to us in Acts, Euroclydon, so that the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, so we let her drive. In other words, they just let go of trying to leave the ship. The south wind blew softly, and supposing they had obtained their purpose, they loosed it, and they sailed close to Crete. All right, the thing about the south winds is that it can cause that gentle feeling in Acts 27, 13, or it tells you in Luke 12, 55, it brings you your heat that you need. It says that in Psalm 78, 26, the Lord caused an east wind to blow in the heaven, and by his power he brought the south wind. In your life, you need the south wind. I mean, that's the wind that you enjoy, It's the south wind. But you have to be prepared for sailing apart from it. The story of Paul is interesting, and perhaps we'll go into it later. But for now, you can see that it's the south wind that baited them out of the harbor. And the minute they were out of the harbor is when they were struck. In Job 37:17, how thy garments are warm when he quiets the earth by the south wind. So you see this consistent within scripture about the south wind. Some people hope to live their whole life with only a south wind. And that's what we talked about the last time. It's not a matter if there's storms, it's when there's storms. When Jesus told that story, he said, the storm fell on both houses, but it was the difference of what you're built on. It's the strength of what you've got to be able to go through the storm. The boat flew in a thousand pieces. You don't want your boat or your house to explode because you weren't ready for a wind other than the gentle wind. We're facing times where we're going to need a very strong structure, a very good foundation, and the ability to go through storms, to overcome storms. The next wind is the east wind. Next, I ask, what is the attitude of the east wind? I've seen the north, and I've seen the south. What does the east wind bring me? In the book of Genesis, where it begins talking about the east wind, it's in Genesis 41, verse 6, 23 through 29. And it reveals how the heads of grain got withered by a scorching east wind. You know, the east wind in Genesis is what created the famine. The seven years of famine is what the east wind brought. That was a very consistent wind. It's what Joseph foresaw through the dream. The east wind will empty your cupboards and it'll empty your pocketbooks. But yet the east wind did something very remarkable. 
I bet you didn't know this. It was the east wind is what God sent that parted the waters of the Red Sea so that the Israelites could escape. It parted the waters. God didn't just send wind. He sent an east wind. And it parted the waters so that they could walk across in the mud, sinking up to their knees. No, that scorching east wind dried the ground where they walked across on dry ground. The east wind is what I call the wind of distinction. It can divide nations. At this moment, it divided God's people from the Egyptians. The Hebrews became distinct from the Egyptians. It is the wind that was sent to divide you from slavery. It can separate you from your enemies, and it separates you from those who are chasing you. Sometimes I'm chased. I need a good, strong east wind to make a path for me. And when the east wind let up, guess what happened to the enemies? Yes, it gobbled them up. It licked them up. Not only the enemies, but the chariots. It just washed them up. The east wind was what God raised up to part the waters of the Red Sea. In Jeremiah 18, 17, I will sweep over my people like a wind from the east, and I will use the Babylonians to do it. You're seeing that the east wind is when other people are bringing judgment. The Babylonians here were prophesied before it happened to Daniel in Jerusalem. I will bring a wind from the east, and I will use the Babylonians to come on. You know, that's where people that are called by the name of the Lord, they're not doing what they should be doing. And the east wind comes, and they cannot stand up to those that are coming after them. They cannot stand up to their enemies. You know, you need the wind that divides it for you to walk away from your enemies, to not be touched, to not be destroyed. You don't need the enemies coming and taking over you. Look at what Hosea says. You don't think about this in the book of Hosea. You know, the guy who loved an unfaithful woman. And every time she was unfaithful, Hosea would buy her back and love her. And in Hosea 12.1, I read this in the pulpit commentary. Hence, that which is unpleasant and revolting alike is compared by Orientals to the east wind. We probably say that that group in there is now more like the Middle East. Hosea was upset because these treaties were curses in disguise. Their fondness for foreign alliances, low-lying and fraudulent dealings resulted not in just chasing the wind. Low-lying and fraudulent dealing resulted not in just chasing the wind. You've heard people talk about chasing the wind. It comes from the east wind. It's going after things that aren't going to bring you peace. It's alliances. It's covenant relationships with people that aren't covenant partners. It's fondness for fraudulent dealings. It's the east wind. It's starting trouble in your land. The east wind is usually very strong, powerful, hot, and dry. Ezekiel 17.10 goes further and also would look in Ezekiel 19.12 to show how a strong, tall vine was uprooted and stripped of its fruit by, of course, the east wind. The east wind is very fierce. 
So I would say that the east wind is full of what I call fierce love. What anger is sometimes, it's a strong form of fierce love. Isaiah 27, 8. Has the Lord struck Israel as he struck her oppressors? Was she killed like those who slayed her? By warfare and exile you contended with her, and you removed her with a fierce wind, as on the day when the east wind blows. Therefore Jacob's guilt will be atoned for, and the full fruit of the removal of his sin will be this. When he makes all the altar stones like crushed bits of chalk, no Asherah poles or incense altars will remain standing. Again, it's the east wind that intervenes. What a metaphor. The metaphor is completely used through scripture of an invisible force that comes and wipes away the evil. Comes and takes away the idolatry. Comes and removes those fake foreign alliances in your life. I'm sure you can think of some relationships you've had where you go, oh, the east wind blew and I thought it was going to kill me. <laughs> that breakup was horrible. It's the wind of the east. And here is where it comes and acts. That it is the Eurocladon wind. It is such a unique wind that it has its own name. That it's the one that hit the ship. It blows from the desert with sandstorms and blazing heat. If you've ever been in the Middle East, you can see the wind coming. <laughs> you think, how can you see the wind? I thought we talked about this. Because it takes the entire desert with it. It turns it red. One time I got caught out in one and it pelted me with rocks. Like it hurts your skin. It was like the dirt was coming at you so hard it would get in your eyes. People, you couldn't see even a few feet in front of you. And it looked like it was dark and it was just blinding with rocks pelting you, sand. It turned a color I'd never seen. We were in Jerusalem and I had been at the Jerusalem Post doing an interview with a lady. And she had let me have a piece of her mind and told me off. By the time she and I left the building, we ran into each other. She with an umbrella, me without one. And by the time we got to the bus stop, we were dear friends. <laughs> what had happened in the office was repaired <laughs> walking through this wind. It tore you apart. And the east wind. Against the ship, a tempestuous wind. This expression comes from Greek words of an eastern storm that the word signifies. A kind of tempest which is called by those who now frequent those seas, a levanter. It was a kind of hurricane, not carrying them any one way, but it actually took them. Listen to what this wind does to you. It doesn't shove you in any one direction, but tosses you backwards and forwards, for those furious winds blow in all directions, from the northeast to the southeast. This wind, it just descends upon you. Like, it doesn't push you in a certain direction. It just tears you apart. The east wind is one of the worst when it forms into one of these type descriptions that they're using here. I really don't know if I can describe it to you well enough until you've experienced it yourself. It is not a pleasant situation. We talked about this. With the east wind, thou breakest the ships of Tarshish. With mighty wind, the ships of Tarshish will be broken. Psalm 48, 7. I was reading on this verse, 
And they said that the psalmist must be thinking about the days of Jehoshaphat. When he created an alliance that God did not approve of, and a wind came and wiped out his entire fleet of ships. <laughs> Jehoshaphat had done really well. He had really pleased the Lord. And so he immediately built himself up an alliance with a foreign nation. And it just says the entire navy was taken out. One of these hit him. It's the same thing that happens with Acts. And so that's what this Psalm 48, I'm sure they had to be thinking about this, that the east wind, it broke the ships apart. Ezekiel 27, 26, Your oarsmen take you out to high seas, but the east wind will break you to pieces far out at sea. I bet Paul could have read that verse and said, Amen. <laughs> he told them, Don't go. I foresee this trip is not going to turn out well. Don't go. Don't go. In Jonah 3, 3, this is the perfect example of it. Jonah, he's had some adventure. God called him. He wasn't quite sold out yet. He went kind of the Kayla direction away from God said, go this way. He went opposite. <laughs> he had gone through being on a boat. Everybody decided he was the problem, tossed him over. God miraculously sent this protection agency. And he swallowed him with a little bit of slime and toad. And Jonah makes some quality decisions while he's in the ribs of the well. The mercy is that three days after being in the well, it throws him up on the banks. Jonah has had a change of heart now. He goes and preaches to Nineveh. He tells him, you're going to burn. He is very, I think, pleased with himself that he's walked through this city and said what God told him to say. And he's lived to tell about it. So now he goes and he gets him a front row seat and he's going to watch him go down. This is Jonah 3.3. 3. And we find out the east wind comes to visit Jonah. It's a very unusual time because Jonah has still the hard heart. He's done what God told him to do. But he's not happy about it. But he is really happy because there's an air conditioner. There's a soft breeze. I'm sure the south wind was tickling his ears. And there was a nice tree or vine that grew up very quickly, and he sat underneath it. Now, if you've ever been there, I'm telling you, you love your tree. When you're out in the hot Negev, and it is so hot you think you're roasting, you love yourself a tree. And Jonah loved himself this plant. He was so pleased with himself. And he had just preached the greatest of sermons on record. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. A sermon that was so powerful, the entire stadium had repented, fallen to their knees, and ran forward for salvation. I mean, it was one of those record-breaking sermons. And then we are, he is, everybody's amazed, the people of Nineveh who are completely heathens. Repented, turned from their evil ways, and the city was not destroyed. But Jonah wasn't emotionally okay with what had happened. This wasn't how he had planned for it to turn out. In chapter 4, we find him waiting outside the city. And in verse 8, the vine that had shaded Jonah from the heat of the sun was smitten and withered. When God strikes your plant, and God sent the scorching east wind to blow on Jonah, and the sun beat down on his head until he got faint, and he thought he was going to pass out, and he wanted to die. And it was in this moment of the east wind 
that Jonah was asked by God to learn a lesson. So the east wind comes with lessons. And the wind spoke a lesson to Jonah. And this is what the wind was telling him. You know, animals don't know their right from their left. And these people are just like that. They don't understand what they're doing wrong. And he said, Jonah, shouldn't I have compassion on this many people when it just took one word from you and they were willing to repent? You know, that was the lesson that was being taught to Jonah. He needed to have concern and understanding. Oh, Jonah looked down on him, but he was angry. You know, I see in this wind that it kind of gives us a taste of our own medicine. We want compassion, but we don't want to give it. We want mercy on our lives that we're saved, and we'll fight theologically to make sure everybody knows that you have to accept Jesus to be saved. But what about the heathen? When you go into a store, do you have a, a plan of witnessing to them? Do you have a plan of putting the gospel in someone's hand? I mean, that's my favorite reason why I printed books. They were throwing away my tracks. And then I had moved from nickel tracks to $5 films that I was buying that I thought would make them listen to the gospel. So I would hand them a film. Well, the films were getting very expensive, so I turned to books. <laughs> You've got to find your way. Or you're going to be like Jonah. You have never cared about the hardness of people around you, and it's catching up to us. Okay, the wind gets our attention and brings change. All right, so the east wind of Jonah, the east wind comes and it helps our hearts line up to the will of God. That emotionally we're lined up to God's will. That emotionally we get into line with our assignment. Jonah wasn't emotionally connected to his assignment. His heart wasn't connected to it. Even though you can do God's will, like the guy who went out and worked in the field that didn't want to, Jonah had gone and done what God had told him to do, but he emotionally wasn't there. The east wind created an environment, a lesson, for you to emotionally line up to what God's asking you to do. You know, sometimes you're up against hard groups of people, enemies, people you don't think deserve another chance. But emotionally, you must love your mission field. <laughs> you must love those that you're called to minister to. You've got to keep it up where when something goes wrong, you lay on your face and you intercede for those that you're called to. That's what Moses would do. When those children of Israel would act up, he'd lay in the ground and he'd intercede. And he'd ask God, have mercy upon them. Who are you called to? They're the ones that you've got to emotionally be willing to cry out for. The ones that God has assigned you to. Not the ones that you've assigned yourself. A lot of times you have emotions for the ones that you've assigned yourself to. I'm talking about the ones that God has connected you to. Those are the ones that you ask God, let my compassion grow for them. When I see the fact that they don't understand what they're doing. Like Jesus said, forgive them. They don't get what they're doing wrong. You have an emotional connection to those that are in ignorance. And so this is the lesson of the east wind. And it comes across our life to teach us the lessons that we need to know. It's fierce. It gives us a taste of our own medicine because sometimes we can't learn any other way than to feel the pain they're feeling. The wind gets our attention and it brings change. 
Now we've heard the message of the north wind, of the south wind, of the east wind, and now and of the west wind. I think of these when I think of Kayla. And of course, Kayla had to call because she must have felt me <laughs> speaking on her. But what about that west wind? I found the west wind mentioned in a very strange place in the Bible. It's mentioned in Exodus 10 in the plagues. And we're told that God had been dealing with Pharaoh. You've got to see it my way and let my people go. You can't hold in captivity someone that belongs to me. This is a message to those controllers who are controlling people that have assignments of God on their life, who are God's people. There are people who see themselves as God-ordained controllers, manipulators, this is the message of the plagues. <laughs> You've got to let go God's people. You can't keep captive who God doesn't keep captive. God gives these people free will, and he doesn't tolerate someone having a manipulative, controlling spirit of destroying people and making their life difficult. So it was the number eight lesson in this of the locusts the giant grasshoppers. You know, what's funny is I told you in the last one that the east wind brought them and it stripped the land of the leaves from the trees. This plague, more than any other up to this point, softened Pharaoh's heart for a while. He called Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God. Therefore, forgive my sin and implore your God, please take away this plague. You know, people can say the right words. I repent. I've sinned. Forgive me. I want to do it right. Would you pray that this is removed? Controllers have a hard time letting go of control. It's that thing where that spirit has done for them what they want to get done. And so we're told that in verse 13 that Moses prayed. And when he prayed, God sent a mighty west wind. The reverse. It come in by the east. It goes out by the west. To blow away the locusts and bury them in the Red Sea, so that no locusts remained in all the coast of Egypt. <laughs> I mean, that wind was really good. It took away all those swarms of locusts. Exodus 10, 19, And the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away, and blew them into the Red Sea. And there remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. When God does it for you, He does it completely. He totally removed them and took them all off of them. It shows you that we're putting up with things sometimes that are wholly, completely evil. Completely not supposed to be in our life. That some kind of hardness has brought this onto us. And that when it's removed, it's completely removed without a trace. So we conclude that the west wind is the wind of God's mercy. It's the compassion. It's the reversal. It's when Jonah had to see, my heart's hard. I must let go this bitterness I have. And the west wind comes and moves with the mercy and the compassion. It's the wind that blows over every praying and righteous soul. Every soul that has it in them to beg God for mercy. It's the wind of the Spirit. There are other winds that blow, but the west wind is by far God's favorite. For it's the wind that blows in his mercy, his love, 
his hesed, his grace. For the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind, and the heart of eternal is the wonderful kindness because of the goodness of the Lord. For he is so, so good. Even to the proud and the haughty and the defiant Pharaoh, when he said, I've sinned, God sent a west wind of mercy. And only when he hardened his heart again that God released the north wind again of the judgment. <laughs> and so let us listen to the west wind as it blows through our Bibles. The west wind is the wind with strength and it brings provision. It brings the answered prayer. It is the fruit of repentance. It is what you get after you repent. It's what God gives you that you don't deserve. In the Exodus story, the east wind brought them. But after Pharaoh repented, the west wind took them. Carried them off. Not one was left. I would dare say there were probably locusts in the land before this plague. But it took them out as well. There are some things that are demonic in nature from start to finish. They're a plague in nature. The west wind. The west wind brings the winter rains essential to agriculture. In summer, the west wind brings relief from the summer heat. The west wind. It represents the season of spiritual refreshing and renewal. It talks about your provision. It talks about your lakes, your tanks for Texans, ponds for northerners to be full. It's an answer prayer. It's harvest. It brings blessings. It brings this thing called breakthrough. And it's great fruitfulness at the sunset of each day. If you think of the West, it goes to the sunset. It's the blessing. I was reading this one young man, and he was talking about what it's like in his area. And he said, over a major part of the globe in both hemispheres, winds do blow from west to east. In the monsoon region in which I live, winds change direction every six months. But what is important is that all these winds bring the benefit to the people. The changing of the winds. You know, in 1 Kings 18, 44 through 45, the seventh time the servants reported back to Elijah, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising up from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot, go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black and clouds, the wind rose and a heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The west wind had brought a stop to the famine. The empty pockets, the empty cupboards, the famines, it's the west wind. It brings rain. It's a remedy for the east wind. It is refreshing. The west winds blow from the setting of the sun and reveal the end of the day, the end of the age, and even the restoration of all things. In the setting of the sun of the west. The summary. The natural winds of the earth are a type and shadow. You need to know what direction the wind is coming from in your life. We would just say, a wind came. Our generation doesn't say the direction, but the Bible labels it. The Bible knows the winds by their directions. The winds factor into extraordinary events on situations as foreseen by the prophets. Now, I've gone with the directions of the winds. I'm going to move you to another odd thing about your scripture of the winds. When the Bible speaks of winds, I've shown you where it talks about north and south and east and west. 
But there's also something very significant in your Bible. And that's when the Bible speaks of the four winds. The four winds of heaven. What does it mean when the Bible says the four winds? It's principally describing the earth, the whole earth, the heavens. You know, if we were going to talk about the four winds now, the ancients would say the north, the south, the east, the west. The four major wind systems and wind belts, we would say now, are four major wind systems are the polar and the tropical easterlies, the prevailing westerlies, and the intertropical convergence zone. That's how you would think if you're a weatherman. That's why they get it right all the time, right? So the polar and tropical easterlies. I want you to think about something here. There's the polar, the cold. The tropical is the heat. The easterlies are connected to the polar and the tropical, the equator. Prevailing westerlies and the intertropical convergence zone where it all meets together. That's how they would talk. The four winds. These are the four wind systems. I'm going to read through them. Ezekiel 37, 9. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may come to life. He calls on four winds. God had breathed air into the dust of the ground to make man when he first came alive. Without air, they're dead. When breathing stops, life ends. You hear in the Bible, it says, let dead bury the dead. Ezekiel had the next step. Four winds scatter now, and it does the contrary in another situation of positive nature. You see the same concept used in Ezekiel, Matthew, and Mark. The next four winds, Jeremiah 49, 36. I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four ends of heaven. This is where it makes both in the same reference. Some people see it as the four winds of the earth, the four winds of heaven, and it will scatter them to all the winds, and there will be no nation to which the outcast of Elam will not go. This means when I scatter them, they will go to every nation. That's God really scattering. The combined power of the four winds of heaven was to be deployed against the nature of Elam to scatter the people in all directions. Daniel 7.2 I was looking in my vision at night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were churning up the great sea. Make a note next to Daniel 7.2. Compare this to Revelation 7. Daniel 11.4 But as soon as he had arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor to the authority which he welded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides him. Daniel 8, 8. Then he made the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. That's what goats do. But as soon as he was mighty, the Lord's horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Wind in the mouth of the prophets. Zechariah 2, 6. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heaven. Zechariah 6, 5, the angel replied to me, these are the four spirits or winds coming forth, spreading, going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. This one's very interesting. 
it encompasses the four horsemen. Matthew 24, 31, Jesus picks up on this. Did you know he spoke of the four winds? And he will send forth his angels, and with a great trumpet they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Mark 13, 27, and then he will send forth his angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the furthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. From earth to heaven I will gather up my elect from the four winds. And now the final one. And with this I'm going to do a comparison that if this doesn't make you rejoice, this is amazing. In Revelation 7, 1 through 3, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth. Remember, I told you where God kept them. That the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. So these angels held back the wind to keep them from blowing on land, sea, or tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And that angel cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to harm the earth and the sea. The angel said, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed up the servants of our God on their forehead. In Revelation 7, verse 1 through 3, the servants of God were sealed on their foreheads. And hurt and harm were held off until the sealing took place. In the book of Revelation, four angels are seen holding back the winds of the earth to prevent these winds that we've talked about from blowing on the land or sea until they could get the elect all together. This is the third kind of role that the four winds are playing in the last days, in the end of times. John, in his vision, saw the four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing. There would be no highs or lows, whatever. It would be an atmosphere of infinite calm. When you hold back the wind, it is completely calm. Have you experienced the stillness? I wouldn't have expected this verse in Revelation. That they pull back the winds and it brings a complete calmness. So I inquired of the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, Lord? The angel replied to me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out after taking their stand before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going towards the land of the north, the one of the white horses towards the west, the one with the dappled horses towards the south, etc. Some scholars link this to Zechariah 6, 5 and the horsemen that are nicknamed after the four winds of heaven. You see this in the interchange of the words ruach with spirit and wind. So if the four horsemen refer to the trials endured, then the ceiling refers to God's protection. If the horses are the trials and the ceiling is God's protection. I'm saying S-E-A-L-I-N-G. Ceiling. The ceiling has significance for the final crisis. Even the historian Josephus makes reference to a voice from the four winds. It reminds us, of course, of Exodus 12 and the plagues of Egypt. God's people did not go through what everyone else went through. But it was poured out around them because the blood sealed them 
on the doorpost of the houses on the night of the Passover. But I want you to look at Ezekiel 9. And this is the verse that compares to the ceiling that we're talking about in Revelation 7. Look at this verse in Ezekiel 9. It explains a seal of God. In preparation for the Babylonian attack on Jerusalem, God commanded an angel to put a mark on all true believers. When you have an invasion where the north is going to come down, judgment coming from the north, you see in scripture what we're calling a type and a shadow that God commands a seal on his people. In chapter 9, 6, armed beings who had charge over the city of Jerusalem. It talks men, but at times it's angels. It'll go backwards and forth. I think they had a battle axe in their hand. Guess what's going to happen when they start using the battle axe? We see that what happens in the natural, that there's also a spiritual realm where things are being played out. We only see the effect of it, but we're seeing behind the scenes. And Ezekiel shows us this. There are six of these guys armed. They are charged over the city. Sometimes angelic beings have or desire assignments related to places or geography. It's like angels are assigned to certain locations, places. This is one of those examples. But a guy comes up dressed in linen. Anytime you see him dressed in linen, you're talking angels, or you're talking priest, or you see the saints in Revelation dressed in linen. But he carries something interesting, an inkhorn. Now, this is a word that you don't find in Hebrew. You don't find it written all through the Bible. They think perhaps that it's like a word like we might use, uh, loco. <laughs> we might use a word that everyone knows what it means, but it's borrowed from Egypt. And it means he's ready to write. So this guy that is like a priest or an angel or a saint, who is this person that applies ink? And you see here where the glory moves. It's a shuffling of the glory here. And there's a command to mark the foreheads of the godly men in Jerusalem before Babylon strikes. I told you Babylon plays into Revelation. Revelation 7.3 describes God's servants as being sealed on the foreheads. And several other passages also describe a later satanic counterfeit of this mark so you can't have the counterfeit mark of the beast on the forehead or the hand without having it represent the true mark as i was looking into this i thought my lands so everybody worries in revelation 13 16 of the counterfeit mark but this is the sealing mark that takes place first in revelation 7 so it says in Ezekiel, go through the midst of the city and put a mark on the foreheads. You'll be shocked what causes the mark to go on these guys' heads. What did God weigh back then? He weighed your care. Did you care what was happening? He weighed how much you cared. He said if you sighed, if it bothered you, 
But if you go along life as normal and the world doesn't bother you and you don't see the decline and you're in the, the realm of the, you know, we talked about the shock versus some people are not shocked because they don't see any difference. Every leader is the same. It's just they're all the same. You hear them say everything's the same. It's no different than before. Those guys don't get the seal. It's the one who sees the difference who actually push back against that difference. It's shocking to see what brought the distinction here. God commanded the one with the inkwell to mark the righteous men of the city. It was a protective identification to protect them from the coming invasion. We have a coming invasion. It shows that even when judgment comes upon an entire nation, God still knows how to mark and identify the righteous. We go through it. The invasion comes over the top of us. The death angel flies over, but there is a ceiling. Like the blood on the doorpost on the night of Passovers and the scarlet cord in Rahab's windows, we see this happen. Listen to these words by this commentator trap. Let us mourn in the time of sinning, so we shall be marked in the times of punishing. It is a time for mourning. If what's happening in our nation does not bother you, you will not be sealed. There is nothing to seal you from it because you are part of it. That is the line of distinction. That's how you know you're different. If it doesn't have an effect on you and it doesn't weigh upon your heart and it doesn't turn you emotionally, you will not be distinguished by the seal. Let us mourn in time of sinning, so we shall be marked in times of punishing. Go after him through the city and kill. God commanded the other six men to use their weapons of judgment against the city as a whole, sparing no one, anyone, who is marked. Now I'm going to read you what Poole wrote here, but when you read it, it's shocking. Regard no state, no status or sex, neither the loveliness of a virgin, nor the prettiness of an infant, nor the comeliness and gravity of the matron, spare no one. It says it will kill them from the top to the bottom. And this is not a time when babies are spared. The innocent does not go to the babies here. Second Chronicles 36, 17 describe the fulfillment of this. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, we know who he was, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin or on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hands. That was the fulfillment of those not sealed. Begin at the sanctuary. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Will you destroy all the remnant of Israel? In desperation, oh, Lord God, Ezekiel, the hard Ezekiel, who gave these judgments out of his mouth himself that was so much pronouncing judgment, you see him begging God when he sees this happen before his eyes to not destroy the remnant as he poured forth his fury on Jerusalem. God's explanation Ezekiel says, I need an answer. I need an answer for what I'm saying. Here, the guy who seems so tough, you see within the, the tough prophet is the tender man with compassion. 
And he said, God, give me an answer. And he said to me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. And the land is full of crime and bloodshed and murder. The city is full of perversity. For they said, the Lord has forsaken this land and God doesn't see what I'm doing. And as for me also, my eye will not see, nor will it spare, nor will I have pity. So it says for me also, my eye will neither spare nor have pity. In other words, what you are saying is what now you're getting. But I will recompense their deeds on their own head. This is the time of the end. It is the law of sowing and reaping. It's when judgment comes. It's when we do get what we deserve. This is fairness in motion. Since the righteous are marked, the fate of the wicked is sealed. And the angel comes up and he says, I have done as you have commanded me. The angel could report that he had marked the faithful remnant in Jerusalem. And so we see that he will send forth his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And Revelation 7 points out this time of sealing as the four winds are held back and a calmness comes over and an angel comes forth as the four winds are held back until the tribes of Israel are sealed, God's people, which means they are prepared in God's word and the winds that are about to hit are held back until this is done. For this must take place. And so... I would say in conclusion tonight of when we studied the wind in the mouth of the prophets, you need to see to it that you're sealed. It's that thing of playing the game not to lose, but in order to win. When you think about it, you don't need to play the game in order not to get the mark. You need to play the game to be sealed as belonging to God. Where you say, Lord, seal my heart, my mind, that I may endure what's about to come. The winds are getting, when you feel it gets still before a storm, you know it's about to hit. You need that sealing to come in place over you. Amen.